As uh, Dan mentioned before, this week has been a big week for our Year 12s. Uh, we had the privilege on Wednesday to go and uh, visit Phoebe and Kira's graduation, uh, our Year 12s here at church. And it was here in Queensland and in Australia, a group of people who are leaving one stage of life and entering into another. I don't know if you can remember back that far or not that far uh, ago, but this is a time which is exciting and fun, but also there is a feeling of kind of fright and anxiety attached to that as well. Uh, For me, I remember when I finished school, uh, I didn't know what was ahead of me. There was unclarity. Uh, All I knew was that I would continue working at the deli at Woolworths that I would have a year off and hopefully try and figure out in that gap year what I was doing while I was eating hot chickens at the end of the day and salami and all the good stuff like that. That's all I knew. But in that moment, uh, as you finish school, as you look towards your future, there is that kind of uh, unclarity. There is that moment of kind of fear, and as you look into the future, yes, it's exciting. I mean, of course, I was happy to finish school, but there's that moment as you look into the future that there's kind of that that moment of fear. And so after schoolies this week, we will have another group of people who are finishing one season of their life and entering into another. And the question on our our teenagers' minds is not just what is next year going to look like, but ultimately there's kind of a bigger question here involved with it, and it's if God is kind of real, if he exists, what does God want for my life? What does God want for me in 2019? What does God, what is God's will? I mean, if you can remember, maybe you asked those questions as well. And, And as they come back from schoolies, there's going to be this recognition that there's something really big happening. But obviously we know these questions, what is God's will for me, what does God want from me, is not just something unique to teenagers. This is something for all of us. I mean, we get to the end of 2018, it's mid-November, Christmas is just around the corner, and then 2019 will come, and the question for us is the same, right? I mean, you might have a plan for what next year might look like, it might be much of the same, But the reality is, is there is a little bit of unclarity of what next year will look like. And so the question's not unique to teenagers of what does God want from me? It's not unique for them. It's something that actually we can all kind of relate to. What is God's will for me? What does God actually want from me as 2018 finishes, as 2019 rolls around? What does God want from you? Well, we're going to look into our Bibles today, and we're going to see God speaks into this space. And so in our Bibles, we're going to pick it up from where Jenny read out for us before in verse 38. And this is where we see Mark continues his eyewitness account. He writes this, As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. What does God want from you? Well, here in this passage, what we see is what God doesn't want. And to to point us to this, we see Jesus point us to the teachers of the law. Now, we got to remember, these guys are the religious leaders of the day, right? So if you're asking the question, what does God want from you back in that day? Chances are you would go to these religious leaders. You would ask these people, okay, what, what does God want from me? Because these religious leaders were the ones who trained in the Bible and trained in the Old Testament. They knew what God said and spoke about. You would go to these guys, But Jesus doesn't say, does he, listen to the teachers of the law. He doesn't say, listen to the religious leaders. Instead, he says, watch out for them. 
Beware of them. So why does Jesus say this about the teachers of the law? Well, we've got to understand the teachers of the law. And Jesus points to four things there. He says they like wearing flowing robes. They get greeted at marketplaces. They get the best seats at the synagogue. And uh, they get invited to your banquets. This is what the teachers of the law did. And, and as we understand not just what they did, but who they were and their heart behind it, we see what God doesn't want. So let's understand these four things. Firstly, they wore flowing robes. Now, back then, men wore robes. Right, They wore robes just around, and chances are they would wear a robe of any kind of color. Sometimes bright colors, sometimes not bright colors. But the teachers of the law had a special robe. It was a white robe, right? kind of like the you know, wedding dress. That's kind of like, I imagine, what the teachers of the law are wearing. This white, you know, nice robe as they're walking around. You can clearly notice them. And so the first thing we see is that the teachers of the law would be noticeable. Right? You would be able to pick out in a crowd who were these people. On top of that, they got special greetings. So uh, as you would see a teacher of the law walk past you, the law of the day was you literally had to get up and greet them, and you would have to say rabbi or teacher or even father. So the picture is you're having coffee with your friends or a drink with your friends, and a teacher of the law walks past. You literally have to stop what you're doing and greet these teachers of the law, right? Because they had honor, they had respect. Now, it is interesting. There's one exception to the rule, and it's if you were a laborer. If you were a laborer, you didn't have to say hello. Now, I wonder whether that's because they wanted laborers to keep doing it or they just wouldn't do it, right? I can't really imagine an electrician in the roof stopping, coming down, saying, hi, teacher. Like, that just wouldn't happen. Who knows why the law existed like that, but that was the exception. So they got greeted, they were respected, they were honored, they were noticed. Then they had a special seat at the synagogue. So this would literally, I mean, like church today, this would be like having a seat out the front. So if you can kind of picture Ross sitting here, the whole church service, I mean, me sitting here, not only would that be weird, I wouldn't want that, right? I just, maybe Ross does, I don't know, but I personally, I just wouldn't, I don't think Ross wants that. Uh, I don't think anyone wants that. But this is what the teachers of the law had, right? They had these special seats of honor. So everyone would be sitting like this, and then these guys are just sitting at the front in the white robes, because they were respected, they were honored, they were praised. And then finally, they got invited to your banquet. So if you had a party, an event, a wedding, it was a privilege to invite a teacher of the law. Now, you know, we know wedding etiquette. You know, you're not meant to wear a dress that's white. That's for the bride. But so you would invite a teacher of the law who's kind of, you know, sure, it's a robe, it's slightly different, but they get a special seat at your wedding as well. So you get the bridal party, and then you get the teachers of the law, and you just think about it. I mean, for the bride in that moment, it's one of her, the special days of her life. People notice her and you know, say she's beautiful and all that stuff. But if you've got teachers of the law there, you have to come up and you've got to greet them first. Right? I think we'd actually be a bit dirty if we had to invite those these days. To, I mean, they're wearing white as well. I mean, how could they do that? But this is the teachers of the law, right? This is the perks that came with their job. They were honored. They were respected. They were praised. Now, we all know, right, we all have perks to our jobs, right? That's just part and parcel. When I worked at the deli, right, I used to love it because at the end of the day, we could just dig into the hot chickens that no one ate, right? Sometimes, you know, a little bit early too, we would put them in the fridge and just dig into them anyway. That was the perks to that job, but not as good as the perks to being a teacher of the law, right? You get invited to parties. It's, you know, respected, honored, greeted all the time. I mean, you, you do wonder when this kind of tradition stopped for 
teachers and religious leaders. I've seen you have parties without me. No, I don't know. I don't really care about that. But, you know, this is the, the perks of the job of the teachers of the law. This is what they had, right? So they did the right stuff. They looked good. But Jesus doesn't say, listen to them, does he? He doesn't say, go and find out what they say. Instead, he says, watch out for them. Beware of them. So why does he say this about these teachers of the law? Well, it's because they did the right stuff, kind of, but they did it from the wrong heart. They kind of did the right stuff, but they did it from the wrong motives. And we actually see this in two ways. So we see this first and foremost. See, we think about teachers of the law. Their job is to point people to God. But the first way we see this, we see their heart in this, is through the way instead of pointing people to God, they point people away from God. And we actually see this in the passage in chapter 11 and 12 through the bits that we've missed. So if you were with us last week, we finished in verse 25 of chapter 11. In the flow over from chapter 11 and 12, if we were to fly over that, what we see is over and over again, the teachers of the Lord try and kill Jesus. They want to stop Jesus. Okay, And, and we see that quickly as we work, work, work over it. So first, we, firstly, we see it in verse 28 up there. Right? They come to Jesus. They ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? Jesus basically rep- replies with a question and then says, I'm not going to answer you. Then we see in chapter 12, Jesus speaks a parable to them. The parable is basically that they will kill him. And then in verse 12, they begin to plan for a way to arrest Jesus because they, you know, he, they recognize the parable was about them, but they're afraid of the crowd. Verse 13, we see some more Pharisees and Herodians. They come and they try and catch Jesus out in his words, but he responds in such a way that at the end they're actually just amazed by him. Verse 18, they send some more people to try and catch him out, this time talking about the resurrection and marriage. And Jesus responds in verse 24 and says, You are in error because you don't understand the Scriptures or the power of God. Then we see it again in verse 28. They come and they ask him, which is the most important commandment? Jesus basically says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. The teacher responds in a pretty good way. But then in verse 35, Jesus says to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So you're close, but you're still not quite there. And then in verse 35 to 37, we see Jesus just basically say the teachers have been teaching the wrong stuff. And so what we see as we kind of fly over those verses and those couple of chapters there is again and again and again, the teachers of the law are fighting against Jesus. Right now, think about it. Their job is to point people to God, but despite seeing God among them doing miracles and teaching, they point people away from him and they want to kill him. Right? See, despite doing the right stuff, their heart is in the wrong spot. Their heart isn't in it for God. There's no genuine, authentic relationship with God, and so they do whatever they want, and here they want to kill Jesus. That's the first way we see it, but we also see it from verse 40. And we see in verse 40 that they do two things. The first one is they devour widows' homes. The second one is for show, make lengthy prayers. So the first one, devouring widows' homes. So uh, widows back in that day didn't have a means for an income. Right? In a patriarchal society, the men worked, and if they lost their husband, they, could no longer, they didn't have a means for an income. And so it was designed in the synagogue that they could go to the synagogue, and the synagogue would, would actually provide for them. So, you know, it's kind of the pension version came through the synagogue, not through Rome, right? But in this case, instead of these teachers of the law providing for the widows, which was their duty and their right, they were robbing the widows, 
They were taking the last bit of income they actually had. And in so doing, they were devouring widows' homes. See how their hearts aren't in it? Their hearts aren't in it for God or for his people. They don't love him. They don't love their neighbors themselves. They are robbing the widows who have no source of income. Then we see they for show make lengthy prayers. Now, we all know the experience of a lengthy prayer, right? We've all been sitting there at dinner when someone goes on and on and on. And if you're like me, you know, you get shaky when you start getting hungry. And then you just think, man, if you don't shut this prayer up, this fork's going in your arm. Maybe just me. But I'm glad that Jesus says this. But unfortunately, he's not talking about those lengthy prayers, right? Maybe that's more of a reflection on my heart and our hearts, God is not against lengthy prayers, but the teachers of the law here did it for show. Right? So they were doing it so they would be seen to be praying. That's why they prayed. There was no authentic relationship with God. There was no genuine thanksgiving where just in that moment, you know, sometimes they're just caught up with the emotion of what's happening. That's not what's going on. They are doing it just so that they would be seen to be praying. Again, can you see their hearts aren't in it? Right? They, they might be doing the right stuff, but they're doing it from the wrong motives. Their heart isn't in it for God. Their heart is in it for themselves. And so we see, firstly, what God wants, and we see through these people what God doesn't want. He doesn't just want your actions. Right Now, there is a natural application here for any of us who do any sort of ministry to make sure that we're not just doing the right stuff, but we're doing it from the right heart. Right? Like the trap is real, the struggle is real, where we want the glory, we want the recognition, we pursue the praise. There's a challenge here to make sure that we're doing the right stuff from the right heart, that our heart is in, actually in it for God and for his people. But more than that, as we ask this question, what does God want from us? We see it pretty clearly. God doesn't just want your actions. God doesn't just want you to do the right thing. You see, if you could point to the People in this day and age who had it all together, you would point to these teachers of the law, right? They came to church every week. They would today. They would be welcoming at the front door. They'd be preaching. They'd be leading the singing. They'd be welcoming. They'd be, you know, doing everything at morning tea. They'd be posting about it on Facebook and Instagram. They'd be the guys that, you know, you look up and they see, oh man, they're reading their Bibles again, right? This would be the people. You'd point to them and go, they've got it all together, But what Jesus is showing us here is what God doesn't want from you. He doesn't just want your actions. He doesn't want you to just go through the motions where you just do the right thing and you tick the right boxes. That's not what God wants. So what does God want? What does he want from you? What what does God want from me? Well, as we keep reading, we see this. And in one of the contrasts uh, of the biggest extremes, we see and we meet this widow. Verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite that place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So the teachers of the law, they did the right things, but they did it from the wrong heart, with the wrong motives, from the wrong reasons. Here we get pointed to this widow. 
And we can see the contrast, right? I mean, we've got the rich versus the poor. We've got the, those in society that are honored and praised and held up versus those you wouldn't even notice, right? You've got the religious versus just another person. And yet here in this moment, Jesus is showing us the religious don't have it all together. It's this poor widow, Right? And in this moment, we get this beautiful passage, these few verses of power and beauty and this challenge here in this moment of what God wants from us. Now, um, if you think what God wants from us, in our society, in our culture, people often say, God just wants your money. Right? That's what people say. Um, and it's no wonder that they say that. I mean, the media, you know, we see a news story every few months about how you know, the church is asking for more money. We see some other pastor that wants more stuff. You know, we see churches do stupid stuff with their money sometimes. You know, it's no wonder people think that the church just wants your money and that God just wants your money. Then you come to church and you get a bucket and you've got to hand it around, right? And you feel the challenge then and there. It's, it's no wonder people think that God wants your money. But see, in this passage... We see God doesn't just want your money. He wants your heart. God doesn't want your money. He wants something bigger than that. He wants your heart. See, this widow comes and she literally puts in the equivalent of 10 cents, two five-cent coins. Now, when the world sees that, what does the world see? Nothing, right? Like that's, you can't even buy two lollies with that anymore. That's not enough to even carry around. That doesn't, that's not valuable at all anymore. And if someone came up to you and offered you 10 cents, what are you saying to them? Saying, keep your money, right? I don't want your money. In fact, because it's cash, I mean, I don't carry that anyway. Keep your money. We don't want your 10 cents. That's meaningless. That's nothing. But to Jesus in this moment, when he sees this woman give 10 cents, what does she see? The world sees a woman giving nothing. But here in this moment, Jesus sees this woman giving everything. She's not giving out of her wealth. She's giving out of her poverty. She's not giving 5% and thinking that's a good start. She's not giving 10% and thinking, you know what, when we get over this next hump in our life, then we'll start reevaluating what we give. She's not giving 25% and thinking that she's generous because she gives 25%. No, in this moment, this widow gives everything. She doesn't give out of her wealth. She gives out of, her, out of her poverty. In this moment, right here, she gives everything. She gives it all. I mean, how powerful is this? And when Jesus sees this widow, he says, this is what it looks like. Now, it's fascinating. I mean, in the book of Mark, as we've been going on, so in chapter 8, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross and follow me. And then he talks about how he will go to the cross. And Jesus will go to the cross in a few chapters' time. We'll see that Jesus died on the cross for his people. Now, it's obvious, but when Jesus died, he didn't give 5%. didn't give 10% or 25%. Jesus died, and in so doing, he gave all he had on the cross. And then he says to his followers, if you want to follow me, pick your cross up and follow me. And what he's saying in that moment is not give part of your lives, but give all of your lives. Come and follow me. And here in this moment, we get one of the first people in the book of Mark that actually gives her whole life to God. And you can kind of see Jesus sitting with his disciples going, finally, someone gets it. Here, this widow, the world sees her giving nothing, but here we see her giving everything. And he says to his disciples, this is what it looks like. 
This is what it means to pick up your cross and follow him. It means that we actually give everything. And here in this moment, we see what God is after. We see what God wants from you. He doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. He doesn't want part of your lives. He wants it all. Right? We see that clearly from this widow. God wants your heart. God wants all of you. He doesn't want part. He wants it all. Now, earlier on in the chapter, when the teachers of the law said, what's the greatest command? Jesus replies with, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here in this widow, we see this, and here we see what God wants from us. He wants our heart. Right now, I know that this might not give you clarity on next year. Right? Unfortunately for our schoolies, I can't tell them exactly what next year looks like. But we do see clearly what God expects from us, what God wants from us. Whether it's 2018 or 2019, it's that God wants our heart. God wants our lives. So the question is then, what does it mean to love God with our hearts? What does it mean to love God with everything that we have? It's interesting, um, in 2016, a guy called James K.A. Smith wrote a book called You Are What You Love. It's uh, a great book. He's a really smart guy. And in that, his basic argument is, you are not what you think, you are what you love. Okay? And he points out to our society that we often think that people are what they think. Right? We think that if we can capture people's thoughts... Then, then that's going to be it. We're going to win them over. We basically think of people as, and he uses this example in his book, as brains on a stick. Right? Now, whether this is from the intellectual age or whether this is from you know, just being able to ask Google anything you want, or whether it's from Descartes who said, I think, therefore I am, we as a society think that people are what they think. But in this book, he argues that you are not what you think and that Descartes was wrong when he said, I think, therefore I am. And he argues actually that it should be, I love, therefore I am. It's not I think, therefore I am. It's I love, therefore I am. And his argument is that everything we do flows from not our thoughts, not our brains, but from our hearts, our desires, our wants. Everything that we do comes out of the center of who we are. Now, this is in line with the Bible, right? In, throughout the Bible, the heart is this picture of the center of who we are, right? We see this over and over again in the Bible. The heart is the center of us. And we see this, that everything that we do flows from our heart. Our speech, you know, Jesus says that. Our thoughts, our actions, everything flows out of the center of who we are. Which means that this guy that wrote this book is actually right. We are not what we think. We are what we love. Now, this might sound a bit of, you know, up there and out there, but the reality is our experience actually knows that this is true. We actually know that we are not just thinking people, that, that the statement, I think, therefore I am, is actually wrong. We know this through our experience. Right? So, so a couple of examples. Think about it with food. Why do we eat food that we know intellectually is bad for us? Why do we do that? Right? I mean, intellectually, we know that. I mean, so Macca's... I know is bad for me. Intellectually, I get that. I, intellectually, I don't know what's in the burger, right? No one knows. It's a mystery. I know that there's bad stuff in the buns. Don't really know what that bad stuff is. I know that those chips aren't good for me. I get that. And yet, in the last week, because of the Maccas app, which is 30 deals in 30 days, I've eaten more Maccas in the last week than I have in the last year. Now, why? 
Why do we eat food that we know is bad for us? Why do we do that? Well, it's, it's quite simple. It's because we want the food. We desire the food. And in that moment, our desires actually trump our thoughts, right? So here's how I justify it. I've eaten pretty well this week. So I can eat this bad food, despite knowing that intellectually, not only is it bad for me, but I'm going to feel bad after it. I'm going to justify that, right? Or maybe I justify it. I mean, this is how I justify it too. I, I went for a ride this morning. I exercised. So now I can eat bad food because somehow that works, right? You see, though, in that moment, desire, which flows out of our hearts, our loves, actually trumps our thought. We justify what intellectually we know is bad for us. Or think about it like with shopping, right? Like why is it that we go shopping and we buy stuff we don't need? Why is it that we want to, we, we buy a new phone when we don't need the new phone, we buy clothes that we don't need, or we buy, you know, I mean, I do this as well, we buy like soda water, knowing that it has a limited use in a big bottle. Why do we do that when we go shopping? It's because we want it, right? I want a new phone. And so I'm going to justify in my head why I want a new phone. Um, we, we want the new clothes, so then we justify why we need the new clothes. We want the water, and so we justify why we need it. And so here's how I justify it, right? Maybe you can relate to this. I've had a really hard week, and I just need to go to the shops and buy some stuff. And so intellectually, you know, I can deal with that later. I can justify that, but I've actually had a hard week, and I want this. Or, you know, um, I haven't bought a new shirt in a while, so uh, intellectually, I can justify buying that shirt despite knowing that I don't really need that. Um, I can justify it, right? Maybe the justification looks a little bit different for you. But, but you can see then through food and through shopping that we are not what we think. We are what we love. But obviously, this plays out in much bigger ways than this, right? Think about it with people, okay? And this is something that we as youth leaders here at church, we see this all the time. I mean, as someone who has done... Uh, been at Southside Youth for a little while and then been on camps, we see this all the time with teenagers where they make a decision based on their loves, not based on their thoughts. And in this moment, we see, I mean, often the heartbreaking decision that people make when they want to you know, go a different direction, when they want to give up on their faith. We see this constantly with this, right? Now, in this moment, when teenagers give up on Jesus, they're not giving up because intellectually they don't know, right? They're not. They're not giving up because intellectually. I mean, we are strong on that. That's our strength. They're giving up because they love something different. They see what the world has and they love what the world has. And so they justify it then despite knowing different. I mean, I received a call one night where a teenager abused me on the phone because I was a liar. And I tried to push him on that and ask him about that. And he couldn't even justify it. He didn't even know what he was saying. But in that moment, there's something deeper going on. He loves the world, and he wants the world, and so then he's okay to justify his thoughts. You see, we are what we love, we're not what we think. But we see this with our characters in this story as well. Think about the religious leaders. What do they desire? They desire prestige. They desire honor. They desire praise. They desire money. And in that moment, we see their hearts, they're greedy, they're selfish. And so what do they do? They justify devouring widows' houses, right? Like, how could you take money off a widow that can't make money? 
How could you destroy someone's life like that? Well, it's because they wanted something else, right? They loved themselves. They wanted money. They were greedy. Or you think about it with this widow who comes to the temple and gives literally all that she has. How could she do that? How could she give everything that she has, not not knowing what tomorrow brings? Well, we see for this widow, she loved God. She trusted God. She desired God. And so then she gave her money. And so what we see then is that you aren't what you think. You are what you love. And what God wants from us is not just our thoughts. He wants our hearts. He wants all of us. So practically then, what does this mean? What does it mean practically to be what we love, to to realize that, and then to see that God wants our hearts? Well, there is a first and small application of this, and it's just to actually reevaluate our desires, right? To actually think about in your life, what do you desire? What do you want in your life? Because your desires do not flow from your brain, they flow from your heart, and your desires reveal something about what's going on deep down. That's the first kind of small application. And let me encourage you to think about that this week. But the bigger application here has to do with the widow and what she does. Right? Don't you find it interesting that for Jesus to point to someone who has it all together, she doesn't point to a, he doesn't point to someone who gives their lives in service in the temple? Don't you find it interesting that he doesn't point to someone who you know, spends lots of time and you know, gives up their time? Don't you think it's interesting that he actually points to a widow who gives her money? Why does Jesus point to a widow who gives her money? Well, I think it's because God actually knows our hearts better than we do. And the human heart has a tendency to love money. We have a tendency to pursue money and to go after money and to find our security and our identity in money. Right, think about it with the rich young ruler. A few weeks ago, we looked at this with the rich young ruler. And with the rich young ruler, remember what Jesus said to him. He said, sell all your stuff and follow me. And in that moment, Jesus was going after his deepest love, his money. But the rich young ruler went away sad. He couldn't do it. He went away sad because he didn't. He loved his money more than he loved Jesus. And so we gathered together and we felt the challenge of that passage. And then if you're in a growth group as well, we met in growth group and we wrestled with that challenge. And then as we looked at that challenge, here's what I did. I justified my giving. I don't know if you were the same, but I felt the challenge intellectually and then I thought about it and then I justified what I give. Now, why did I justify my giving? Because if I'm honest, and if I can invite you into this honesty, it's because I love money. It's because the human heart has a tendency to go to money. Where we find our security and our identity in money. Because money offers more. It offers a bigger house, a better house. It offers a car, a better car. It offers stuff to us. And the human heart has a tendency to go towards money. This is why the widow is here. Because here is a woman who gives it all, gives her money to God. Now see this. God doesn't want your money. He wants something bigger than that. He wants your heart. He wants all of you. He wants you to trust him first. He wants, you to, he wants uh, him to be your first allegiance, where you fall at his feet and you trust him with everything. That's what God wants from us. He wants our hearts. He wants all of us. He wants us to love him with everything. This is what God wants from you. 
This is what God wants from me. He wants this in 2018. He wants this in 2019. He wants this from the rest of our lives. God wants us. He wants all of us. And so what this practically means then is that we can come to God and love Him with everything and give up our love for money. Let go of that love and find our deepest joy and our sweetest security, not in our money or our stuff, but in Jesus. This is what God wants from you. Not your money. He wants you. He wants your heart.